0: Hey, good evening. Welcome to another week of Bible Study Fellowship. It's great to have you here with us virtually. We're looking at Matthew chapter 18 tonight. So uh, let me pray for us. We'll get started and we'll dive into Matthew 18. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do have a desire for greatness. Uh, Lord, we, we want to be great at the things that we do, whether it's the things that we work at, Uh, the hobbies that we have. uh, We we have a desire to do great things in this world to make a name for ourselves. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word tonight, that um, you would help us see not our greatness, but the greatness of Christ. And uh, remind us, Lord, that it is because he is great that we have a place uh, and a way to enter into your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I, I was thinking a lot about uh, the topic of greatness, we have we were in the Super Bowl season, uh, Tom Brady has retired, you know, there's people talking about Tom Brady being the greatest football player of all, of all time, uh, and I was thinking about Hall of Fames. Many different sports have a Hall of Fame, whether it's bowling or hockey or baseball or football, even rock and roll has a Hall of Fame. And when we think of those different Hall of Fames, depending upon the sport or discipline, there 's going to be different criteria that will determine if someone is able to be a part of the Hall of Fame, so in football, it might be the number of Super Bowls that you 've been in or the number of Super Bowls that you 've won or it might be touchdowns that you 've thrown or yardage that you 've gained or receptions that you 've made but there's uh, you know in in, in baseball it 's going to be a different set of statistics and rock and roll i mean i don 't know maybe it 's going to be like the number of albums you sold or the number of top forty hits you had but there's there's always uh, criteria that people will look at and even debate about to determine what is it that makes someone or something a great football player or a great baseball player or a great band what is greatness defined by and that that idea of greatness seemed to be on the mind of the disciples as they're entering into Uh, The information in Matthew 18, they come to Jesus with a question, saying, "Who is the greatest?" And uh, it's a question that we as people always want to wrestle with. We want to think about it. We want to know. And wherever we're at, like if we're students in school, or uh, if we're you know racing our friends on our bikes, it's you know you're five years old and you're racing around the neighborhood. This idea of who's the greatest, what does it take to be the greatest, is something that uh, fills our heart and fills our mind. And so the disciples were wondering this. And and I think as we look at Jesus's response, which I believe goes through all of chapter 18, we're going to understand that uh, Jesus exemplifies greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus exemplifies greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not a, gr- a greatness that 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 would really make sense to us so that we could figure out. The disciples really needed Jesus' help to unpack what does it look like to be great in God's kingdom. And he, as he goes through this, we're going to look at this in uh, two different uh, sections. We're going to look Uh, At the first part, verses 1 through 14, and then also at 15 through 20. But I think that Jesus is helping the disciples understand some of the criteria that define greatness in the kingdom. Jesus is going to go through them. We're going to go through them. Uh, And the first one we're going to find in verses 1 through 4, which is humility. Humility. This is not something that we would expect to find in any of our earthly halls of fame. The people that are in those halls of fame are people that uh, maybe not boastful but maybe people who are great. They have a, a, a sense of uh, of grandioseness or larger than life. If you look at the people in the rock and roll hall of fame it 's not going to be you know the humble bass player uh, it 's going to be people that are that have these loud personalities, and so when Jesus says to his disciples. And he points out not only humility, but childlike humility. I'm sure it catches them off guard. Let me read some of this. Uh, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, chapter 18, verse 1, saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, calling to him a child, he put him, the child, in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let alone be great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is just like to enter the kingdom of heaven requires humility, uh, humble like a child. Uh, it's, it's interesting the way that Jesus phrases this is turning. Uh, he uses the word. He says, "Unless you turn and become like children, so." The sense that it seems to convey is that our natural tendency that we have, maybe as adults or just as people, is to look at self-reliance and our own abilities, our own ingenuity, our own brains to help us get through life and and deal with issues. And and we've kind of figured out the way that we need to go through life, and we figured out how to be successful, whether it's in the workplace or in our personal lives or in our in our hobbies. And Jesus calls us to turn uh, to turn away from our natural tendency and to turn towards uh, the ways of a child and and I don't want to uh, convey or, or, or convey the sense that every single parent-child or every single family relationship that maybe you and I have been a part in is going to be perfect, but I think if we if we think about what Jesus is getting at here, uh, children are definitely dependent upon their families, upon their parents, for their needs. If we think of an infant or we think of a, a one- or two-year-old child, uh, survival apart from your family, apart from your parents, is not possible. And for the most part, like one- and two-year-old kids are okay with this. Uh, they're, they're, they look to their mother and father, they look to their dad, they look to their moms for the source of all of their needs, whether it's food, water, clothing, just anything in life, kids are looking to uh, those adults in their lives to care for them, and there's a sense of dependency, and there's a sense of willing dependency uh, that's there. Uh, I think that Jesus provides maybe the best example of this, whether, you know, certainly he was... Uh, he was the Son of God, and I think that he demonstrated this sense of true humility by giving up his a place in heaven, his eternal heavenly throne that he had that he had occupied from the dawn of of time and before that, to be willing to come and die on a cross for the sins of other people, uh, people that actually he had created. And and I think when we think about our ability, our ability as adults or our ability as as people to to turn, how successful are we going to be at doing that? And I'll tell you from my own experience, like I'm I'm I have to keep turning because my tendency is to turn back. Uh, and I think that, in my own life, my lack of humility, my self reliance, and my pride that I have in my own abilities is something that I have to be continually coming back to the Lord and saying, "I'm not doing well at this uh, i'm my, i'm I'm trying to turn and I'm trying to 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 live as one who is completely trusting and completely humble and relying upon the Lord, but yet my my tendency is to turn back." Uh, to my own way, and perhaps uh, that's something that, that you've experienced as well. If we look at verses 5 through 9, uh, another criteria that, so humility is our first criteria, our second one, another criteria that Jesus puts out there is uh, the notion of tempting others and or dealing with sin in your own life. It, it, maybe those are two different categories, but we'll look at them in 5 through 9, Uh Jesus goes on with the child uh, explanation to his disciples. He says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the sea. Jesus goes on and he speaks a woe to the world for temptations to sin. It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. So we have a, a scale that Jesus seems to make. On the one hand, it's receiving uh, someone who believes in him. And on the other hand, it's uh, causing that person to uh, to be tempted, to tempt somebody, which is an unusual scale, right? Receiving and tempting, we don't tend to think of those uh, being on the same scale. And I, I don't know why Jesus juxtaposed those. Uh, but regardless, introducing temptation into someone's life is a big deal. It's a serious situation. Jesus is basically saying it would be better if you were not alive to be to be down in the depths. That's the first pit we're going to see in this little section. Millstone down in the depths is is better than bringing about temptation uh, in in a follower of Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus says that temptations are necessary, but woe to the one um, who brings that temptation. Jesus talks about, uh, it's a, so it's a serious issue. Temptation is a serious issue down to the depths, better than causing others to be tempted. Jesus goes on and he talks also about sin. Uh, in verse 8, he talks about, and if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. Okay, so again, another pit, eternal fire, the pit of eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. So again, temptation is a big deal, but internal sin things inside of us that, that that cause us to want to sin, whether it's our hands, our feet, or our eyes, Jesus is recommending amputation for those organs. And I think our first question as we think about this is, is this literal? Uh, cutting something off that's critical is a serious deal. I mean, if you lose a hand and you lose a foot or you lose an eye, it's different than like you know, losing a fingernail, or or losing, you know, I've lost my appendix. Uh, you're going to definitely have a challenge going through life without one of these critical appendages. Um, I, you know, I, and I sort of wondered, like, how many people in my church am I seeing that are going around with one hand and one foot and one eye? Um, and then I also began to wonder, like, even if I was to, you know, if I had a temptation that came because of my right hand, and if I cut it off. I am going to have temptations that are going to come again. And uh, how much of myself am I going to have to cut away before my sinful desires stop? I don't know that uh, if I'm still alive, uh, I don't know that the sin from within me is going to ever stop. Um, and so I... I, I I've been wrestling with this to wonder, what does it mean? What is Jesus driving at here? And I think, again, the reality is is that uh, sin is a very, very serious problem for people in God's family. When we tempt others, when we have sin in our lives personally, um, it is something that we need to deal with. The implication, the goal of our lives is to enter life. He uses that phrase a couple times in here, right? If you, it is better for you to enter life crippled. It is better for you to enter life with one eye. Uh, and so the, the goal is that we want to enter life. And the way that we do that is without sin. And if, and if we can do that by maiming ourselves, great. But I'm here to tell you, that I can't do that. And maybe you've tried to uh, live a life apart from sin and you found that you failed as well. Um, I think the good news for us is that Jesus was maimed for my sin and for your sin. Uh The Bible teaches us that uh Jesus in the in the Book of Revelation is referred to as one who looked like a lamb that was slain. Uh, Jesus experienced this kind of of, of maiming and destruction on the behalf of sin, not his own sin, but the sin of of those who believe in him, who trust in him. and so uh, we have an opportunity to enter life not because of what i've done but because of what Christ has done. Uh, In verses 10 through 14, Jesus uh, speaks a parable to his disciples. Um, It starts off with an interesting section. uh, See that you not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I think this is a verse that's sort of gotten us to think about guardian angels uh, it's difficult to know exactly what to make of this. Does this mean that, that Jesus' followers all have uh, an angel? Maybe. Uh, I don't know definitively. This is a difficult verse to understand. Uh, but certainly, um, there are there, there are angels. Angels are a reality. Jesus speaks of them here. Uh, and certainly, angels are aware of the plight of, of people on earth, and and we've seen places in the in the New Testament when angels have interacted with people. Does this mean we have guardian angels? Maybe, but here's what the parable says. It's a parable about lost sheep. Man has a hundred sheep. One of them goes astray. The man leaves the ninety-nine to rescue the one. And I began to think about what's the reason. If we think of Jesus as the shepherd, Jesus as the one who looks for the lost sheep, what is it that drives people? Away from Jesus, uh, and I think that my answer is sin. I think sin is the thing when we have sin in our lives, and when we want to pursue our sinful desires, our tendency is to want to wander away from the safety of Christ. Uh, I think that that is our tendency, and the good news is is that Jesus will look for us if we do that. But the the challenge for you and for me, if we're followers of Jesus, is we should want to remain close to Him. We should want to remain close to the one whose voice we know. When something is drawing us away from the Lord, that thing is not good for us. That thing is not going to bring us good in this world. Uh, the promise of Psalm 32 and elsewhere in the Bible, David is saying that if we confess our transgressions to the Lord, well, David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Uh, David's sins were not necessarily small ones. David, David did real sins that were wrong. And uh, David killed people. Uh, For his own self-interest, David was an adulterer, but David found forgiveness because of Jesus. Uh, And and I think the little principle, the mini principle here about Jesus is that Jesus is the one who seeks for the lost sheep. I guess for this whole section, for these first 14 verses, uh, the principle for these verses is I think apart from Jesus, there's no way into the kingdom of heaven. We, uh, we've, we've, we've seen movies and perhaps in our own you know, experience, we've, we've come to the conclusion that there's no such thing as an impregnable fortress or an unbreakable system. Uh, maybe movies or, or life have taught us that the right combination of people, talent, determination are going to allow access to be gained to anything. Um, if there's a will, there's a way. That's what we've sort of seen in our world and in our lives um, and certainly in in our entertainment paradigm. But I think the reality is that this notion of where there's a will, there's a way, doesn't work to get us into heaven. We cannot accomplish it on our own. I would like to think that I could. I would like to think that um, I can turn and be like a child. I would like to think that I can cut sin either actually or, or spiritually out of my life and out of my heart. I would like to think that I'm not going to wander from the Lord. But the reality is, is that I have and I will. um And so, I need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed. I need to be changed from the way that I am so that I can be uh, made, made right, made fit for the kingdom of heaven. And I cannot accomplish that apart from the work of Jesus Christ. I need his sacrifice so that I can find a place in his kingdom. And so perhaps there's been some part of your journey where you can think that pride has has dominated your faith journey more than humility. Um, But perhaps also, let's not sell ourselves short, sometimes we do get it right. How has humility been a part of your story of trying to follow the Lord? Perhaps you can think of a time when you've been guilty, or I've been guilty, I can think of times when I've been guilty of tempting other people. I've done this wrong. And maybe you have a story about that as well. But perhaps you can also think of a time when you received, you received one of Jesus' people rather than tempt them. And maybe there's a part of your story where you can think of experiences where you've wandered away from Jesus. You've wandered off. Sin has pushed you away from the one who who is willing to die for your sin. And perhaps there's other times that you can think when you've stayed close to Jesus. I think another category that we have uh, looking at verses 18, chapter 18, 15 to 35, another category that's out there, uh, the statistics that we have for greatness in the kingdom of heaven is our ability to forgive other people. And Jesus is going to spend the latter half of this chapter talking about forgiveness uh, forgiveness that we give to others, and uh, what is that going to look like as we seek to follow after Jesus? Well, if we look at verses uh, 15 through 20, uh, one of the issues that comes up is the question of if your brother sins against you. And I think it would be equally true for us to start this verse off as saying, "When your brother." Or your sister sins against you. There's a pattern that Jesus gives, or there's, a, and, and again, we have to be careful with with thinking that is this pattern going to work all the time? Well, I mean, it's it's this is the pattern that Jesus establishes, but I think we're going to have to approach all of these situations when people sin against us. Uh, it's going to potentially require. Uh, some thoughtfulness and, and uh, some ways to think about it. But this is the pattern that Jesus gives. He says, first of all, you go to, the, to the, your brother or sister who has sinned. Uh, if they don't listen, it's you plus two who then go and talk to this, this brother who has sinned against you. And then the third one is to have it be you and the church who are going to go and speak to this person who has sinned against you. Now, the goal of of, of this passage is going to be uh, ultimately forgiveness. If someone has sinned against you, the thing that needs to happen is forgiveness, not necessarily restoration. I, I mean, there might be situations that you and I could think of where you could forgive somebody, but we're not going to necessarily go back. To the exact same situation that we were in before. Uh, but certainly we are called to forgive. If restoration is possible, that might be a great thing. But, it, but with some sins and some situations, we need to be careful about just saying that we're all back together again and everything's fine and everything's good and we're restored. Uh, but forgiveness is the goal. And then the other goal in this is that uh, groups of believers. When when groups of people are present, uh, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The challenge that we are going to face as we're working through sin in the family of God's people is that we need the wisdom of the Lord. And how do we do that? Well, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We are not going to be able to just rotely go through and say it's you and you plus two and you in the church and we're going to work it out. What we need when we're dealing with sin is that we need the mind of Christ to be present. And so there's an exhortation to say you and then bring others in, because when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, and we need that. When we are dealing with sin in another brother and sister's life, what we need is Christ to be present. Uh, that is what we need. And so, I, we must remember that as we're, as we're navigating this process, it's critical that, that Jesus' Jesus's wisdom, that Jesus is present among them. Uh, if we look again, Jesus is expanding this loosening and binding. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, this notion of like where two or three are gathered, Jesus is present. And so things can be bound and loosened because why? Because Jesus is present in that situation. Peter got this first a couple of chapters ago. Now it's expanded to the community of believers to be able to bind and to be able to loosen. Peter asked a great question of Jesus in verse 21. He wants to know as he's hearing Jesus teach about forgiveness of sins. He wants to know like, well, how, you know, how many times should I do this? Now, Peter said seven. Uh, Jewish teaching at that time would have said, you know, three three times is enough. So Peter's like doubling it and adding one. And so Peter's like, I'm going way down the road here. He's maybe hoping that Jesus is going to come back with like five. Um, and Jesus says, not seven, but 70 times seven. Um, and depending upon your translation, it might be seven times or seven, 77 times or whatever. Uh, but is Jesus's point that there is a finite discrete number that once you know, once you get to that, once you're at seventy-seven, Peter, or once you're at four hundred and ninety seventy times seven, that's the number. Then there's been enough. Uh, I think that Jesus's answer is implying that um, there's no limit. There's no limit to the number of times that we might need to seek forgiveness from Christ, and so there should be no limit that we establish on our brother or our sister. When they sin against us. And Jesus tells a parable of a servant who owed 10,000 talents. Um, You know, there's been changes in money over the years. So we have dollars now, and they were using, you know, talents and denarii, and those are both in here. But uh, if we think of 10,000 talents as a massive debt, a debt that's for a single person like not payable in today's money maybe 6 billion dollars is what we're talking about this was a debt that even if you worked really hard for the rest of your life you would probably not be able to repay and so this this one servant was forgiven this massive debt by his master uh, but the servant refused to forgive the much smaller debt, the 100 denarii, a, there's a unit change there, which is about $12,000, you know, a non-trivial amount of money, but, but insignificant compared to the $6 billion debt. Um, the point with this, at least at one level, is that the salvation that God is offering to his people... Is extremely valuable and costly. You know, if you think about the the the, what is the most costly expensive thing that God could give to us? The life of a son. There's nothing else that is his own person was was killed so that we could experience salvation and forgiveness. There is no more valuable gift that God could have given. You know, sometimes I, I hear about people that like won Powerball, right? You know, like the $500 million jackpot. And you sort of think like, wow, what if that, that'd be amazing. My life would be different if I won Powerball. And and friends, I'm telling you that the the price that Jesus paid, the price that God paid for us to experience salvation is way better than Powerball. And so we have to consider what we have received from the Lord when we think about what we might need to do to our brother or to our sister. There's going to be times as we go through this life together with the big C, capital C Church of Jesus, that there will be opportunities for us to forgive other people. Um, The message of this feels like you have been forgiven much, so you should forgive much. And the servant didn't do this and ultimately was put back into jail by the master. And the lesson for you and I is that we have not received less than the $6 billion debt erasure. We have received that kind of gift. And so when we have the opportunity to forgive people around us who have, who have whatever they've done against us is less than $6 billion. We have the ability to forgive because we have experienced forgiveness. Uh, principle for this section is that Jesus has demonstrated forgiveness for his people. We've we've gotten to see what it looks like in Jesus' life. As we've read through Matthew, we've seen what it looks like to live a life of forgiving other people of sins. When, when the people lowered the man down on his mat in front of Jesus earlier in Matthew, Jesus said to him, he'd seen his faith and he forgave him of his sins. Um, he also helped him walk again. Uh, but this is just, Jesus wants us to get a picture of what it looks like. You know, if we wanted to see uh, what it might look like, a how-to video, we might go look on YouTube and learn how to do something, you know, how to change a light bulb or fix some part of your car. It's, YouTube is filled of how-to videos, and YouTube wasn't around in the first century when Jesus was alive, and he didn't need it because he gave us his parables, and he gave us the example of his life that Matthew and the other gospel writers captured to show us what does it look like to show radical forgiveness for other people. So, a question for you and for me to consider is, who is it that you need to forgive? Maybe someone you know, is out there that, that, need, that has asked you to forgive them and you haven't been able to. Maybe there's someone that you need to go and ask forgiveness from. You have been the person to do wrong to somebody else, and you need to go seek forgiveness from a brother or sister in Christ. I think another thing for us to consider is, who are the people that have already forgiven you? Not not just the Lord of the universe, don't, don't overlook him, But perhaps there are other people who have forgiven you for the things that you've done. Who are the people that have forgiven you? As we wrap up tonight, I think one of the uh, challenges that we're going to face is that it's going to be really near impossible for us to make it into the Kingdom of Heaven Hall of Fame. Uh, We might like to point out some of the things that we've done. Maybe we've have a couple of times when we've shown some humility here or there, or we've done a good job of not tempting people over there, or we've received somebody in the name of Christ over here. Uh, but the challenge is, or the reality is, is that um, we have fallen well short of the example that Jesus set. Um, and it is good for us to try It is good for us to try to follow in the pattern that Jesus has established. Um, But we'll fail. We'll fail in ways that are large. We'll fail in ways that are small. And the really good news for us, and that's the reason that the gospel is called the good news, is that forgiveness and redemption are available because Jesus is in the Kingdom of Heaven Hall of Fame. He lived a life that, That was completely humble. He tempted no one. Sin was not a part of his story. And he gave his life so that others could be forgiven. Let's take a moment and let's thank the Lord for what he's done. Jesus, thank you for um, the care that you have for your people, the love that you have for us, and the price that you paid so that we too can be a part of the kingdom of heaven not because of our greatness but because of your greatness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be humble, to receive people in your name, to not to cut off temptation and sin from our life. Lord, help us to stay close to you. Help us to forgive others, Lord. But Lord, help us to seek forgiveness from you when we fail at doing those things. Amen. Thanks everybody. Have a great week.